Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fifth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the impact of the sexual revolution, the death of civility, the meaning of evolution, our conception of God, the question of why some countries succeed and others fail, and the effect of the digital world on our brains. Historians of the future will, I imagine, date the start of the 21st century not to the year 2000, but to 2001. As any pedant will tell you, this is technically correct. But the reason for dating would, I suggest, not be pedantry, but history. I can't honestly remember any major world event from 2000, but I can remember one from 2001. I bet you can too. In other words, I fear that the new century will be eternally associated with terrorism. Now, terrorism is one of those rare things that we all agree on. It's bad. Even terrorists agree, which is why they prefer to use the term revolutionary or freedom fighter. But that agreement can obscure another, much more challenging question. Does terrorism actually work? Does it achieve the goals it sets itself? And if it does, or even if it doesn't, what does that mean about how we should respond to it? Richard English is Professor of Politics at Queen's University Belfast, where he is also Director of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice. He's the author of a number of books on terrorism, including the bracingly, clearly entitled, Does Terrorism Work? Richard, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thanks very much, Nick. Glad to be here. I'm a bit nervous about heading straight off down the rabbit hole of trying to define terrorism, but I guess we need to face up to that question, even if only briefly. Essentially, like most complex terms, so you can't pin it down definitively, but you can discern sufficient family resemblances, if you like, to be able to use the word meaningfully. What are those family resemblances? Yes, it's an unavoidable place to start, isn't it? And it's a never-ending discussion about what terrorism finally might be judged to mean. My 93-word definition in the book, Does Terrorism Work?, essentially focuses on the idea that if people are using politically motivated, deliberately terrorising violence, which has as part of its mechanism a psychological effect on victims or on the viewers, then we could legitimately call that terrorism. And I suppose my main point would be that that could be by non-state actors, which is the focus of this book. It could be by states, which have frequently terrorised populations throughout history. But the key thing to do is to distinguish which groups you're actually talking about. So in this book, I'm talking about, for example, the case studies that I've chosen are Al-Qaeda, Hamas, ETA, the IRA, and the other organizations I look at across the book are similar non-state groups. But my view is if you're using terrorizing violence with a deliberately political motivation and it has a psychological quality, I think it's fair to call that terrorism. The temptation when we're dealing with terrorists is to assume they're simply mad or irreducibly bad and not to judge them as rational actors. But this is an absolute keystone of the book, isn't it? You can't simply dismiss these people as mad or evil. They tend, as you say at one point, to be psychologically normal rather than characterised by any form of mental illness or psychopathology. So you can analyse the way they think and what they do in a rational way, can't you? I think we have to. And as you say, Nick, it's very painful because understandably, when people look at the awful effects on the victims of terrorism, there's a resistance to treating the 
practitioners of this terrible violence as if they're explicable or normal people. Having said that, I don't think that the terrorist organizations that we're really interested in, the ones that endure for a long time and practice a lot of violence, I don't think they can be explained by psychopathology. I don't think you can just say that there's a mass outbreak of psychopathology at a particular moment in the Basque country or a particular moment in Colombia. I think what you do have to look at is the politics of it. That doesn't make the violence legitimate. I overwhelmingly find myself hostile to the violence of terrorists. I continue to think that most of their justifications are not persuasive. But if we're going to respond as citizens, as societies, as states to this, there's no point just denouncing it. I suppose an analogy you might think of would be the effects of certain illnesses or diseases are appalling, but you want medical advice not to involve mainly denunciation. You want it to be involving explanation. Why did this emerge? What can we do about it? How can we prevent it? And there, I think, recognizing the normality of most people who support or act in terroristic ways or support those movements, recognizing that is really crucial. Mm. Now, you mentioned that the book focuses on four major case studies, um, Al-Qaeda, the provisional IRA, Hamas, and ETA. I'm going to assume that our listeners will be familiar with the first of those two, Al-Qaeda and the IRA. Can you say a little bit about Hamas and ETA? Of course, yes. Hamas emerged in the 1980s in Israel-Palestine as an aggressive Palestinian Islamic nationalist organization, which used violence, aimed in terms of their main strategic goal at destroying the state of Israel and replacing it with an Islamic Palestinian state. And since the 1980s, they've grown in terms of their support amongst the Palestinian population, particularly in Gaza. And although they've done more than just terrorism, they've also done political organization, they've also done social service provision, they have engaged in a lot of violence, which is anti-Israeli, anti-Jewish terrorism. ETA emerged in the late 50s, early 60s as a Basque separatist movement, looking again to use violence as a way of trying to achieve independence and freedom for what they wanted, which was an independent Basque territory covering the Basque region within Spain and indeed within France, ideally. And they, for a long time, practiced violence, which is overwhelmingly now fizzled out and come to an end against the Spanish state in particular, trying to use violence as a vanguardist movement to achieve independence and freedom for the Basque people. So both Hamas and ETA represent nationalist terrorisms, very different nationalist terrorisms, one Islamic, one not, but very much they were nationalist terrorisms trying to use violence to push forward what they saw as the legitimate interests of their respective peoples. You talk about nationalist terrorism there. Are there different formally recognised categories of terrorism in that way? Is there nationalist terrorism or economic terrorism, religious terrorism? Are they categories that are accepted in the academic world? It's a great question because there's a lot of contestation around this. I mean, there are some people who would very strongly distinguish religious terrorism from other kinds of terrorism. And I think it's certainly legitimate to say that there's something different about pursuing the perceived rights of a national people in one homeland from pursuing, for example, a transnational religious goal in the way that you might suggest that ISIS or Al-Qaeda have pursued it, where it's not tied just to one particular homeland or set of interests. Having said that, it's more blurred as ever with terrorism, because as you said early on, Nick, it's a really complicated phenomenon. So many of the nationalist terrorists have had religious beliefs as well. So if we'd been talking in 1920 to an IRA member, they would almost certainly have been a Catholic believer and would have interpreted the struggle for Ireland's freedom as being somehow interwoven with the struggle of the Catholic people against Protestant Britain. Similarly, many ETA enthusiasts, particularly in the early phase, had a strong religious faith. So I think what you have to do is recognise there are sort of blurred categories rather than distinct ones. But I think it is fair to look at the centre of gravity of movements. Is a movement primarily having its centre of gravity as a nationalist 
commitment or is it primarily having a center of gravity as a religious one or you mentioned the economics there are groups which have had marxist motivations which although they may be focused in one country for some groups obviously by implication have a global economic goal to them mm-hmm. and then again you have some lone actors whose motivations may be complicated in different ways so i suppose we have to disaggregate the different kinds of terrorism while recognizing some crossovers and familiarities between them mm. You have a really helpful framework in the book for assessing your overall question of does terrorism work? Because as you repeatedly say, the question needs to be unpacked, does terrorism work for whom? Or does terrorism work to what ends? And you analyse it according to whether it achieves its overall strategic victory or partial strategic victory or whether it achieves tactical successes or secondary successes or inherent rewards. I want to focus, at least for the time being, on the strategic objectives of each of the organisations that you analyse. Now, I don't want to kind of curtail our conversation unduly, but I think it's probably fair to say that of the four main case studies in your book, none of them comes close to achieving its strategic objective, does it? In some ways, if people listening to this take only one point from what I'm saying, Nick, I'd want it to be this, because these are very committed and enduring and sophisticated terrorist organizations in many ways. Many of their tactical operations, however heinous the effects, were impressive. And yet, as you say, none of them achieves their central strategic goals. Hamas does not come close to destroying Israel. The IRA ends their campaign formally in 2005 without achieving a united Ireland. Etta's violence has fizzled out without achieving the full Basque freedom that they wanted. And Al-Qaeda's goals of driving America out of Middle Eastern countries, of revivifying a particular kind of Islamic version of their faith, none of that has come true. So in terms of the headline goals, the things which may be the, the top end of what they want to achieve, none of these groups, despite their ingenuity and their commitment and their undoubted resilience, has achieved their central strategic goals. And I think it's a major point. If people are thinking about terrorism, is terrorism going to work at that high level end? Like many human endeavors, we don't achieve our really headline central strategic goals. I think that's true of most, not all, but of most terrorist organisations. So I wonder if that puts a question by our earlier discussion of their rationality, because if repeatedly, certainly according to an academic historical analysis, it simply doesn't work, are these people as rational as we think they are? Do they honestly think that by killing innocent civilians or declaring war in their own way, they are going to achieve their strategic ends? I think that's a great point. I, I think they're as rational as anyone else, and I think none of us take purely rational decisions. So I suppose my point is not that terrorists act purely out of rationality, but that they're not less rational than the rest of us in the decisions we make, and there's a mixture of the emotional the reason and so forth. So in many ways, it seems to me that being rational in politics doesn't necessarily mean that you're ultimately vindicated in terms of your strategic analysis. What it means is that your thinking and your approaches to the question are not crazy. They're not purely emotional. They're not without some reasoned argument. And I guess there are examples that you cite in the book, the way in which the Mujahideen in Afghanistan were directly linked to and arguably in some sense responsible for the withdrawal of Soviet forces at the end of the 1980s. And that was a lesson that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda drew from it. So I guess there are some examples that these terrorist groups can draw on that justify their faith, for want of a better word, in what they're doing. I think so. And I think often what we do is we look at what are maybe unusual examples 
and derive broader lessons from those. So I think bin Laden certainly looked at what had happened to the Soviets, exaggerated probably the role of Afghanistan in the collapse of the Soviet Union. But as he put it, you know, he, he said, we believe that America is weaker than Soviet Russia. In other words, if we can help to contribute to the death of one superpower, maybe violence against the other can have the effect. And I think similarly, there are ways in which you can draw some examples which seem highly pertinent to you. So regrettably, in my view, profoundly regrettably, people might look at the recent success of the Taliban in outlasting Western commitment in Afghanistan and say, well, actually, violence, some of it unquestionably terroristic, did end up with America and the allies losing the will to stay and with the Taliban returning to power. So I think while most examples of terrorism don't work, sometimes easily memorable successes can make it seem like it's more more plausible than I think in in systematic analysis, it probably turns out to be. Mm. You draw a helpful distinction between overall strategic objectives and partial strategic objectives. And uh, again, an unpalatable necessary question here is that, okay, these terrorist organisations failed to achieve their overall strategic objectives, but perhaps in some instances they did manage some partial strategic objectives. Say, for example, they managed to bomb their opponents to the negotiating table, to put it in a blunt way. Is that right? I think in many areas of endeavour that humans commit themselves to, we don't end up with the absolute amount that we would like. We don't end up with 100%. But if we get 60%, we can claim that there was something achieved. Certainly, the provisional IRA would argue that they and their political party, Sinn Féin, have ended up with greater influence and with greater redress of some nationalist grievances in the north of Ireland because they made it high on the British agenda through the violence. Now, that's a debatable point, but it's not an obviously dismissible one. I think you could argue that over time, Hamas, though it seems to me very unlikely to destroy Israel, have ended up in power in Gaza and may end up with a situation where a part of the territory that they want to control is in Palestinian hands in a way that they could say was partly because of the violence giving them an edge. And I think in those senses, you might end up with something where you get a kind of diluted version of your central primary goals, which though not what you said you really wanted, is something which shows some kind of returns. I also think partial strategic success might involve secondary goals with any major life choice about what we do with our time, with our commitments, with our careers. There may be multiple motivations. So again, Hamas, I would argue, unlike to achieve their central strategic goal, but they have regrettably and tragically repeatedly achieved the secondary goal of revenge and hostility to Jews. In other words, violence against Israelis and against Jewish people has been something that they have got as a secondary goal. And frequently in the history of terrorism, that kind of secondary goal of achieving revenge against enemies has terribly and tragically and callously been achieved. So you might not gain the full thing, but you might get something which means it wasn't entirely without returns. Now, one thing that terrorist groups repeatedly and almost always succeed in is getting publicity. But that, as you repeatedly point out in the book, is very much a double-edged sword, isn't it? There's what I call the paradox of publicity for terrorists, that they seize the day. So the IRA, less supported during the Northern Ireland Troubles than the non-violent nationalist party, the SGLP, but much more famous. ETA, less supported in the Basque country during their campaign than the non-violent PNV, Basque political party, but much more famous. They achieve salience because a bomb goes off and news cameras are there and people pay attention to it. But they achieve famous 
publicity for things that most of us find repellent. And therefore, whether it's uh, all the groups that I'm focusing on in those case study chapters, or the violence of the FARC, or the violence of you know, a Norwegian terrorist like Anders Breivik, what happens is you do gain headlines, but people mostly look on and find you to be somehow repugnant in what you've done. And that, therefore, is something which turns support away from the organization, or away from the movement, or away from the cause. And it often associates in people's minds the cause with the violence. So if people talk, for example, about Palestinian struggle, undoubtedly it has become more famous during the last 50 or 60 years because of the violence of groups like the PLO or Hamas. On the other hand, more than is probably appropriate, it's associated in people's minds with the violence that those groups have carried out when they've carried out terrorism. So it is a double-edged sword, as you put it. And in that sense, I think the paradox of publicity is something which means that terrorists gain a, a dubious tactical success when they gain the headlines. Mm. I wonder whether the paradox of publicity runs in parallel with an almost deeper paradox when it comes to violence. You say at one point about halfway through the book, violence could provide you with leverage, but you would gain only lasting political benefits if you were to move towards the kind of non-violent politics that peace process eventually demanded. The lesson there is that in and of itself violence can't be fully successful because if you're trying to change politics, politics ultimately has to be stable. Otherwise, it's not politics. And in order to deliver things for a population, whether it's a religious population or an economic class or a national group, in the end, you need to be in power. In the end, you need to sustain power, which means you need to have some kind of legitimacy among the population. And in the end, you have to do the much less eye-catching and more boring things of making decisions about the allocation of resources, about schools, about roads, about hospitals or whatever it is. In that sense, I think for serious-minded organizations, organizations that use violence for a political cause, there is a strong logic in the end, if they can, to find some kind of political expression of it, which is non-violent. And I think there, while it's long overdue by the time it happens, and while it doesn't always work out this way, you can see, for example, that the PLO shifted significantly from one kind of politics to another. In a very, very different example, the ANC's engagement in the balance between violence and non-violence shifted over time. Famously, the provisional IRA shifted to a situation where their political party, Sinn Féin, became the centre of gravity rather than the IRA as the violent movement. So in some ways, it seems to me that what states need to do where it's appropriate, where it's possible, is to try and shift the struggle from violent to non-violent arenas so that they can show that the returns of different kinds of struggle, of resistance which is not murderous, of resistance which doesn't involve bombs, can yield more for people. And in that sense, if I'm right that terrorists are as rational as anyone else, the long-term logic is to try and become involved in less bloodstained politics, which will deliver more and ultimately will involve a strategy of trying to build alliances. Which, interestingly, is exactly what Hamas did almost from the outset, isn't it? One of the fascinating things you unpack in the book is the way in which, at the same time as Hamas is executing terrible acts of indiscriminate violence and murder, it's almost acting as a kind of a welfare state, isn't it? So it's already got this dual-track approach to trying to reform the politics. Absolutely. And in some ways, it seems to me that the, if we are to get a benign outcome in Israel-Palestine, it probably lies in that kind of direction, Nick, because you're probably looking at the ways in which can the centre of gravity of a group like Hamas move more towards, over time, more towards the political organisation, political representation, social service provision, in such a way that the violence almost becomes a counterproductive aspect of what they do. Now there, there's a complicated relationship involved. The non-state actor and the state need to find a kind of mutual advantage in some form of sullen compromise. In Israel-Palestine, we haven't arrived at that. In Northern Ireland, painfully, we 
did nearly a quarter of a century ago in ways that aren't perfect, but which have saved a lot of lives and a lot of limbs. So I think what you're looking for in a way is to try and get a, a space where both the non-state and the state actors feel that despite their differences, despite their enmities, they can produce a situation where the non-state actor feels that parliamentary representation or political power or social service provision or welfare activity is really where they want to put their energies because that's what's going to benefit their people. So I wonder whether there are any correlations between, as it were, the success or otherwise of terrorist activities and the size and nature of their goals. The four examples you give, in, in one way, at least, they differ very considerably. Al-Qaeda was looking for a kind of an entirely... It's a religious, but it's almost a civilizational change. The provisional IRA are looking for a much more narrow and focused political and territorial change. ETA are also looking for a territorial and political change, but it's also quite a kind of cultural and, and linguistic one, isn't it? And Hamas is kind of between those. I wonder, effectively, is it down to the, the nature of the objectives that they set themselves that dictate the chances of their success? The bigger the objectives, frankly the less chance they have of ever achieving them. I think the higher you set the target, the more difficult it is to hit it. There's no question about that. So, I mean, there was never any possibility of Al-Qaeda gaining the kind of caliphate that officially they would have liked to see. On the other hand, I think some of their goals about changing American foreign policy or in terms of certain particular settings about undermining America in Muslim countries, you could see them gaining some success in. I suppose the more successful terrorists do, as you imply, tend to be more pragmatic. And there, I think probably, if you're looking at a an index of who's been more successful or who's been less successful. Those groups that focus on the idea of increasing autonomy for particular nationalist communities as against powers or authorities that can be presented as alien are more likely to be the ones that work. So I mean, if you're looking at successes in the past, you might say that the Jewish terrorism of the 1930s and 40s that contributed to accelerating the establishment of the State of Israel or the Algerian terrorism of the 50s and 60s against France, the in a different setting, the Afghan terrorism of recent years against what was perceived as a Western occupation, those are more likely, I think, to resonate in ways that end up not perhaps with the kind of full goals that people would really want, but with greater successes. If you're campaigning for the kind of thing that Al-Qaeda officially wanted in terms of something global, it's much more difficult to deliver it. So even if a US president said, let's give them what they want, it wouldn't be deliverable. So I think in that sense, letting pragmatic goals makes it more likely that they will succeed. What's interesting over the history of groups is they tend to become, as many of us do in our own lives, you tend to become more pragmatic pragmatic as you grow older, as you, as, you know, as you get more grey-bearded, in my own case, so people tend to become more pragmatic. And I think there, setting some kind of realistic goals that are deliverable is probably the best way of achieving something for your cause. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned the Jewish terrorism of the 30s and 40s and, and that in Algeria in the 50s and 60s. You also briefly, towards the end of the book, mentioned terrorism in Kenya in the post-war period and Malaysia as well. There is an interesting dynamic that goes on here with regards to empire, isn't there? And I wonder whether the chances of success in your terrorist activities are, as it were, directly correlated, A, to the kind of the alien sense of any imperial presence, and B, critically, to the extent to which empire is in retreat. I mean, there's no accident that so many of those come from a period of time where the, where the major European empires of the last 150 years or so are willingly or unwillingly, in the process of withdrawing their authority over other territories? Yes, I think the question of state commitment to countering terrorists is absolutely central. So where you have a situation where the state seems to be wavering or losing interest, and as you suggest, when in 
imperial decline is happening, that might be a process which accelerates that. There's much greater chance of non-state actors having success and progress through terrorism. Where you have a situation where defense against terrorism seems existentially crucial, I mean, the Israeli state would be perhaps the classic case at the moment, it's much more difficult to see there be significant progress for terrorists. I think also your question points to a really important issue, which is that it's often, while terrorism is what seizes our attention, it's often not the terrorism that is the most important thing that we're talking about. So what we're often talking about are questions of state legitimacy, of state power, of imperial plate tectonics shifting. And in that sense, the terrorism is a bloodstained symptom of what's really going on. And there, I think the questions around empire and around alienness are really important. If you can present yourself as a group even if you're using violence many people in the country don't like, but you can present yourself as a group that is more authentically Afghan or Irish or Basque or whatever, as opposed to a force that's seen as being imposing from elsewhere, you've got a much greater chance of gaining and sustaining support amongst the people, which is crucial to logistical success for terrorist groups. The dynamic between the terrorists, the popular support, and the more or less foreign imperial power is a critical one as is the dynamic which runs throughout the book between terrorists and the state reaction. One of the critical repeated observations in your book, that the way the state responds to terrorism is kind of the thing that makes the biggest difference. You, You say very early on, state responses to terrorism almost certainly do more to shape the world and its politics than do non-state terrorist acts themselves. Give us a few examples of where that happened and what the implications were. Yeah, thank you, Nick. I mean, I suppose two obvious examples at the beginning of this and the beginning of the last century will, I hope, make the point strongly. It was a terrorist killing which triggered the First World War, but it was state responses to that assassination in 1914, which made the difference in terms of the domino effect that led to that cataclysmic global event. In early 21st century, it was a terrorist act in September 2001, which prompted the war on terror and the terrible 9-11 attacks were an appalling, callous assault. But actually, it was the contingent responses of the US and allies to that in terms of, for example, foreign policy interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq, various different interventions by, including the UK, by different states in terms of the ways that we responded. That's what really changed the world. And in some ways, it seems to me that the importance of this question, does terrorism work, is partly because of this. In other words, we can affect the degree to which terrorism does change the world. We can overreact, and I think states often do overreact. We can exaggerate what military responses can achieve, and I think we often do that and have done that around the world. And we can often curtail our freedoms in ways that probably are unnecessary encountering terrorism, but which do change society. So in some ways, it seems to me that it's responses to terrorism that are more likely to have changed history. Tragically, both this century and the last century began with terrible terrorist attacks, state responses to which really changed the world. That puts politicians in an extraordinarily invidious position, doesn't it, though? Because on the basis of this conversation, if I was a politician reading this, the piece of advice I would take away is do not respond, do not react, do not turn what is a horrible but relatively small-scale act of violence into a horrible large-scale act of war and conflict. But at the same time, your people who have been indiscriminately murdered feel extremely hurt, extremely injured, and want you to respond. I remember very clearly a documentary about George Bush's response to 9-11. And for the first 24, 48 hours, it was quite measured. And then he was visiting downtown Manhattan 
And he realised that the people wanted to say to him, we are going to bomb the living daylights out of the people who did this. And of course he did. So what would your advice be to politicians caught in that extraordinary dilemma? It's, it's very difficult because obviously a professor who writes a book doesn't have to get elected or re-elected. And it's more difficult mm. being a politician in that setting. And states are human too. You know, we, we talk about terrorists reacting to violence against their communities by using terrorism. But states want to react against the terrible violence that they and their citizens have experienced. So I respect all of that. I suppose the two things I would say on that, I mean, it, it does seem to me that if it can be shown that in terms of defending American lives or defending lives in the UK, that overreacting, misdiagnosing the causes and exaggerating what you can do through military methods, if that makes lives more likely to be lost in the UK or the US, I think it's fair for politicians to point that out. And most of us respond to terrorism reasonably by saying we want states to protect us from suffering from it. We want to get on a bus or a plane without it being attacked by terrorists. If you can say the safest way of doing this is to keep it in proportion and not overreact, that's one way of looking at it. I think the second thing is that politicians need to balance different kinds of resource allocation in terms of how they save lives or improve them. And if you look at the enormous growth in expenditure on homeland security post 9-11 in the United States of America. Um, I think there is a disproportionate amount of spending. When you look at the kind of amount of life-saving goods that you get, if you spent the same amount of trillions of dollars on improving healthcare, on dealing with aspects of safety for American people, many more Americans would have had their lives saved than putting that money into certain of the things that it was spent on in terrorism. So I suppose my argument would be, if you exaggerate how dangerous terrorism is, and if you make it worse by overreacting, you're actually making the lives of your citizens, of your voters, of your fellow people more difficult and more vulnerable rather than safer. But I understand there is an emotional component to it and looking like a strong government can help you to get re-elected. Mm. I respect that. But I think in the long term, I suppose one of the things I'd want to say is what's going to minimize human suffering. And I do think that a more restrained, proportional, effective way of responding to terrorism calmly is probably going to save more lives within Western states, but also significantly within mm. some of the other parts of the world where terrorism is more prominent. Let me ask a point about religion, because you've touched on this and it fascinates me in particular. For obvious reasons, religion is associated with terrorism and has become particularly so in the last 20 years. But you say towards the end of the book, to speak of religious motivation can only make full sense if religion is interspersed as involving a broad worldview. And I think you kind of lay a question mark against the knee-jerk association of religion and terrorism. What in your mind is the connection? It's a complicated one and it's very varied. Sometimes it is undoubtedly true that certain kinds of intense religious attachment or conviction can reinforce the necessity in people's views of the use of violence. Al-Qaeda would be a particular version of that, but there are plenty of others we've talked about Hamas earlier in this conversation. Having said that, I think the major religions are always political. They're about questions of identity. They're about questions of political power. They're about questions of political legitimacy. They're about how you organize society, how you organize the economy often. So in that sense, religion is never just about theological niceties or abstractions. It's also about things which are very much political. And the other thing is that while we understandably focus on the times when religion intensifies violence, it's also true that across the main world religions. There is a lot of restraining of violence through the teachings around compassion and forgiveness and empathy. You saw this in examples during the Northern Ireland Troubles. You saw this in examples in terms of the responses, not always reported as loudly as they should be, I think, but the responses which Muslim leaders often give in the wake of violence that's carried out in the name of Islam, but Muslim leaders often condemn that violence. In other words, I think whether it's Jewish leaders or Muslim leaders or Christian leaders or people who are adherents to those faiths, quite often the compassionate, forgiving, empathic aspects of the religion can diffuse the desire for revenge, can diffuse the desire for escalation. 
Yes, yes. And you bring that out incredibly powerfully, one point in the book, and a, a story that very nearly brought me to tears about Joseph Parker, who lost his 14-year-old son, Stephen, on Bloody Friday in the Troubles in 1972, but then went on not to react angrily or, or at least violently but sought reconciliation. Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, so the IRA attacks of the early 1970s were some of their most bloody. And the attack in July 1972, which became known as Bloody Friday, involved a series of simultaneous bombs in Belfast, which overstretched any kind of state response in terms of protecting people. One of the people who was murdered on that day was a teenager called Stephen Parker, who lost his life. And his father, as you say, Joseph Parker, had had his life ruptured by this because of the terrible tragedy of losing his son in this awful circumstance. But significantly, his response, as with many people in the Northern Ireland troubles on both sides of the political and religious division in Northern Ireland, his response was to try and think, let's move away from the demand for revenge. Let's move towards some kind of reconciliation. Let's devote our lives to trying and making sure that fewer and fewer people suffer this terrible tragedy. So in some ways, that terrible atrocity by the IRA in 1972, through Joseph Parker's response to the murder of his son, at least, redounded towards a a more benign view of what should happen in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, and between the peoples here. And I think that's quite a common experience. And it's incredibly brave to see the forgiveness of people. You saw it after the IRA attack in Enniskillen in 1987, but you also saw it often after loyalist pro-state Protestant paramilitaries in Northern Ireland would murder people that you'd find their Catholic victims' relatives would say, I don't want anyone else to suffer what I'm suffering, and therefore I'm calling for no revenge. And in that sense, I think it is, as you say, Nick, it's heartrending to read these testimonies, but in some ways, these are the big stories we need to promote because they show the ways in which humanity, even out of these awful sufferings, can find some kind of resilience, some kindness, some mercy, and that can then save lives. I think people who say, I don't want revenge, people who say, I want to build Mm -hmm. reconciliation, are quietly saving lives over many years. And I think they deserve to be in the historical record as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's striking, isn't it, how in these utterly, the darkest moments of humanity, you get these faint tendrils of, of light that show us the way forward. This has been a fascinating conversation and reading our Times covers a bewildering range of subjects, but they all ultimately, I think, orbit around the question of what does this mean about our humanity? What light does this shed on the nature of the human, our understanding of the human good, how we should live well together? And so the line really struck me towards the end of your book in which you say the most significant aspect of terrorism, it might be argued, is that it serves as a lens through which we can more clearly see other, ultimately more important human realities. What are the important, the ultimately important human realities that our discussion of terrorism allows us to see? I think if you're looking at the terrorism cases we've been mostly discussing here, and which I most sustainedly focus on in the book, the real thing to think about is how we organise societies that treat people as fairly as possible, and how we organise societies that are as stable and non-threatening and non-violent as possible. So this isn't a case of giving terrorists what they want. It's a case of saying, if you have a rivalry in Israel-Palestine about what is legitimate in terms of who's in power, the kind of society you have, what is the most balanced, inclusive, fair-minded, non-violent way of us constructing society, constructing arrangements, however difficult, which means that we can then maximize the degree to which people can live safe and full 
and harmonious lives. So in this way, it seems to me, if terrorism prompts us to think about the question of how we organize states, how we organize societies, how we treat each other, it's a way of us trying to redress some of the biggest problems that we have. So I suppose my answer would be, if we can find ways of focusing on organizing societal relations, on listening to those we differ with, on being empathic, on trying to find ways of producing change which are non-violent, then these responses to terrible political acts of murder can prompt us to try and build a better future. And if we can do that, our response to terrorism can be something benign. The book is called Does Terrorism Work? A History. Richard English, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you, Nick. I enjoyed the conversation. Next week, I'll be speaking to Simon Conway Morris about his book From Extraterrestrials to Animal Minds, Six Myths of Evolution. In the broad envelope of possibilities, it's almost limitless diversity. But again and again, when you look more closely, what's evolved in one group has evolved in another. And I think on the broad scale of things, a sapient, bipedal, mammal-like form is very much on the cards, wherever you are in the universe. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from the series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, It'll help other people find the podcast.